0: Well, for centuries, people have longed to understand who exactly Jesus was or who Jesus is even today. Was he the son of God? Was he just a mere teacher and philosopher? Maybe he was just a revolutionary figure who was just kind of ahead of his time. But throughout his entire ministry, this was even being discussed with Jesus. Was he the second coming of Elijah? Was he a prophet like Moses or someone like Isaiah? Or was he truly the son of God? Because of that, his ministry would always stir up kind of some debate over who he was and what he was doing and what kind of things he was preaching. Now, some called him rabbi, some called him Lord, but others didn't know what to say. He said he was a king, but what kind of king was he? A conquering king who would overthrow Rome and bring the Jews back into their own? Or was he a different kind of king who was bringing in a new kingdom and a new way of life? So with that confusion also comes kind of some poor expectations, See, the people the people of God knew passages like Isaiah 40, which says, Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. Or they think about Zechariah 9:9, which says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. The people of God were longing for a liberator, one who would come and free them from the oppression of Rome, but also even the Jewish officials. They longed to be free. They longed to be in power. They wanted their liberator and their champion. But as people do, even though we do still today, we take passages, we we try to form God into our own image and try to uh, imagine Jesus the way we want him to be. Because if you were to continue reading that passage from Isaiah 40, it would say, or uh, excuse excuse me, Zechariah 9, it would say this, yet he is humble, riding in on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Or further in uh, Isaiah 40, he would say, he, that supreme coming king, will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lamb in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother's sheep with their young. So you see this imagery of the righteous and victorious king humbly and gently riding into town on a donkey. Also, this conquering, powerful king coming in like a shepherd and holding the, the sheep, the innocent, beautiful sheep, lambs close to his heart. And throughout his ministry, Jesus declared many things about him. Right? He declared many things about himself, just even in the Gospel of John alone. He said the seven I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. And he also says, I am the true vine. So when we come to John chapter 18 and the story of his arrest in the garden, it could not be more clear who Jesus was and still is today. So let's set up the scene a little bit and talk about what has taken place because there's so much beautiful imagery in John 18 that if we just read through it quickly, we'll miss we'll miss out on what is truly happening in this passage. So John 18 verses 1 and 2 reads, When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often met There with his disciples. So, to give some background, Jesus had just finished that private meeting with his disciples that we've been talking about. We see this beautiful imagery of him finishing praying that priestly prayer, and now he's going into this garden. Now, the Kidron Valley was a place outside of the city, it was a deep ravine between the Temple Wall in Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Now, Jesus and his disciples crossed over this ravine into this place, and this was a place they would gather frequently. We see throughout scripture Jesus going out into isolation to pray. A common place was this garden. The other gospels talk about this being the garden of Gethsemane. And there's so much power in the names and what these names mean. Gethsemane also is meaning oil press. This place where they would press and crush olives to produce that olive oil. Now Kidron, on the other hand, means dusky and gloomy. And part of the reason it was called this is because the water in the stream in that ravine was often stained with the blood that came from the temple and animal sacrifices. Now, since this story is taking place during Passover week, there'd be so much animal sacrifice going on that blood would be flowing down the stream, making it dark and murky, producing a lot of blood flow in the Kidron Valley. So it's a very dark night. It's it, it's it's dark. It's cold, and we see someone approaching. Verse three says, "So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So this dark, gloomy night in this in this Kidron Valley, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this place of oil pressing and crushing, we see these lanterns and torches appear, and this, this detachment of soldiers mixed with Jewish officials, and then Judas, the one who is betraying Jesus, they come into this scene." They come into the scene with this massive crowd of people. Some experts say this detachment of soldiers could anywhere be upwards of two hundred people, armed to the teeth. They are coming to arrest this peaceful rabbi, this teacher, this carpenter of Nazareth, and his eleven friends, and they're ready to fight. They come into this, They come into the garden, and we see this. We see this dialogue begin to take place as Jesus is arrested. I think it's important to know that Jesus specifically chose this location. He wanted to choose this location, in my opinion, because of the symbolic language and the imagery that's being here. This idea of being pressed and crushed because he too will be pressed and crushed under the wrath of God. The same valley is also in the Old Testament we see David fleeing to the Kidron Valley after being despised and rejected by his, his own son Absalom and the people of God. Now we see Jesus, who's about to be betrayed, despised, and rejected by his own, by his own people, coming to this Kidron Valley, this place of abandonment, this place of sacrifice, this place of crushing. But Jesus was not here to hide. This is not him hiding away, trying to avoid being arrested. No, this is Jesus choosing this location for a reason. He is here to fulfill the will of God. Verses four continues, Jesus knowing that all was going to happen to him. He's fully in control of the situation, knows what's going to happen. He went out and asked them, who is it that you want? And they respond, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And it says "And Judas, the traitor was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So as the officials and soldiers come into the garden to arrest this man and potentially arrest all of his followers, we see this imagery of Jesus stepping out of the shadows into the light from their lanterns and their torches. And he says simply, who do you want? And they respond, we want Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter, we want this peaceful rabbi. And they're there ready to arrest him. They're there ready again, possibly to fight, armed to the teeth. But yet in a moment we see all those detachment of soldiers, all those officials on the ground before him. Why? Because when they say we want Jesus of Nazareth, he responds back, I am he. And they all fall to the ground. Jesus, who had just been in deep, agonizing prayer in the place that represented crushing and pressing, pointing to what would eventually happen in the coming hours and coming days. In the darkness of night, he truly, in this moment, reveals all of who he is. As those seeking to arrest him came into the darkness and lanterns, he steps into their light and he says, who are you here looking for? And he responds back, I am he. So his identity is summed up in a simple phrase, I am he. And he says this three more times throughout this short little passage, but Jesus actually stepped forward out of the darkness into the frail light of these people. He said, I am now what's, 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 what's truly happening here. He is fully identifying as God. It it, it calls back the story of Exodus when Jesus is taking the, when God says, I am. Am, right? We see the story of him calling Moses, saying, Hey, go to Pharaoh and say, Let my people go. And he says, Well, how how whose name do I go under? And God simply says, I am. I am the one who's before, I am the one who is after, I am the one that's all powerful, all-knowing. I am. That's the name that got the people of God out of Egypt, out of slavery, the ones that made Pharaoh run and flee. And this is the name of God now being claimed by. Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am God. Now the the reaction of those soldiers is explainable, right? So we see all throughout scripture of stories like Ezekiel, Isaiah, or even see further in the story of Paul or usually be Saul of Tarsus. And then also John at the sight of God, at the name of God, people fall down in awe and they marvel at him. So Jesus says, I am he. And the Soldiers and the officials, and Judas possibly even too, fall down in awe of Jesus, God in flesh. But he wasn't just telling them what or who he was. He was also telling them what he came to do. I love in verse eight and nine, he says, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one that you gave me. But simply this is that Jesus is saying, I came to do a work. I came so that they could have life and walk away. I came so that they could be delivered. So take my life. I lay it down freely so that they could have life. Punish me so that they could be forgiven. This is the story of salvation right here. He's deliberately saying, take me and let them go. Let them go has also the same connotation as the word forgiveness, which is absolutely extraordinary because it's basically saying, take me and forgive them. Take me, forgive them. I will go to my death so that they and you could be forgiven. But once again, we see it in this story, a person who loves Jesus, but simply is misunderstanding who he is. We know the story of Peter. You know, he's very zealous and passionate about following Jesus. And so he does what probably many of us would do for a friend and a faithful teacher. He pulls out a sword And he strikes what could have been a faithful blow, fatal blow to this man, Malchus. And it says he took off his ear. Now, in my personal opinion, I think that was he was going for a kill strike. I don't think he was going just to cut off an ear. But look what Jesus says to him. Verse 11, he commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? We see as Peter puts his sword away in the other gospels, it says that Jesus goes over and he heals malchus he heals the ear the wound that peter just delivered so here we have peter ready and willing to fight alongside his king alongside his master the one who is coming to conquer all of rome and these officials but this king was also the good shepherd he was also the good shepherd who was willing to lay down his life he was fully in control of the situation he was prepared to drink the cup that had been set aside for him he didn't need peter to take up arms and fight for him he needed simply for Peter to obey him and watch what he does. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah, we see the cup representing God's wrath and God's judgment flowing and being poured out upon the people of God or upon the enemies of God. Here specifically, Jesus is talking about the cross. He's talking about that set-aside moment where the wrath of God will be poured out upon him as he takes upon himself the sin and the shame and the guilt and the punishment for our sin and for our rebellion. He takes upon himself willingly and places upon his shoulders as he's being crushed and pressed in every direction. It's a cup with poison in it. It's a cup which he will drink on behalf of sin for the people of God. It calls back to what Isaiah 53, says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, it was God's plan, God's will for Jesus to take the place of sinners, to take the place of you and me, to take upon himself the punishment and to take upon himself the wrath of God. That's what he was going to do. He was deliberately and voluntarily going to be abandoned. He was choosing to be rejected. He was being, he was going to be crushed like an olive in the winepress of Gethsemane or like a grape in the winepress. Blood will flow out as it does with the sacrificial lambs that were being sacrificed in the temple, filling that valley with blood as a symbol of God's judgment. He would be the perfect Passover lamb. The blood that will flow from the Kidron Valley would also flow from his body as it purifies the people of God. So that not one of those that God had given him would be lost. He will save them and they will be forgiven. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. That's what he did for those soldiers. That's what he did for those officials. That's what he does for you. That's what he does for me and for the entire world. So in a day like today where there's still so much confusion over who Jesus is, whether he's a teacher, a prophet, a political leader, or just another revolutionary figure, this story shows who Jesus was. This is who Jesus still is. He's still God in flesh, laying down his life for his sheep, for his people, following the will of God and taking the cup of wrath that was set aside for us. Taking taking the cup that was destined to be our punishment, he took it upon himself. Isaiah continues in that passage when he says, Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. He is the shepherd king coming in power, but also gentleness and humility. Coming to lay down his life for his sheep, to gather them and to bring them close to his own heart, holding them dearly in his arms. Do you see that Jesus? Do you recognize that Jesus? Because he wants to bring you close to his heart. Will you chase after him and follow him and embrace him as he has embraced you?